the fire burning of real estate was always there. And the flame never really went out. And uh, I don't know. I just woke up one day in 2011 and was like, I got to get back back here and, uh, and start buying some opportunities. Everyone knows the old adage of you buy low, sell high, you buy when there's blood in the streets. And I'm like, I'm, a, I'm an idiot. What am I doing here? Like, why am I sticking my head in the sand? Why am I trying to avoid what is now probably some of the greatest opportunities that's, that, that have ever existed? You're listening to Investing for Good, a show that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are investing to build a legacy for their families, create a meaningful and intentional life by design, and impact the world around them. And now, here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, Julie, how's it going? Hey, I'm doing good, Annie. How are you? You know, the world sure has changed a lot in the last few weeks. Man, your your kids are home. My kids are home. Mm-hmm. You've learned to cut hair. <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> we've learned lots of things. We've been doing lots of things that uh, we hadn't previously been doing. But how mm-hmm. are your kids today? Yeah, they're doing they're doing good. You know, we're rolling into our fourth week this week of homeschooling and the kids being home and this has officially now become our new normal, you know, mm-hmm. and just like anything else, just like I always think about when you have a baby, it's like, "Oh my gosh, like this is so crazy. How do they expect me to care for this thing? I don't even know what I'm doing. Like this is crazy." And that's how it was like the first week. Mm-hmm. I was like, "This is just <laughs> crazy. Like I don't know what they're, you know, these teachers blah 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 blah." blah. And it was just crazy. Mm-hmm. So, um but now, you know, by the fourth week, we, you know, we have our routines and, um, you know, figuring out the grocery shopping has been a, a bigger <laughs> task than I thought it was going to be and trying to secure delivery windows and f- playing that game. So it's been, uh, it's been interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. Who knew that uh, getting a simple grocery delivery would turn into this whole thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been crazy, though, because I still remember when we were um, we were on our way to Tennessee back in January. And um, Kevin, uh, mm-hmm. you know, on our show today talks about this. And uh, I remember back then, I don't pay attention to this kind of stuff usually either. And I just remember back then watching what was happening out there and just knowing mm-hmm. that it was just a matter of time before it was here and before we were living like they were. Um, and, and sure enough, here we are. And uh, it's, it's crazy. But you know, it's funny in a in a weird kind of a way, these are days that I feel like I'm really going to miss because Mm -hmm. my family and I have been so close and we eat three meals a day together, seven days a week. (laughs) And, um, you know, we've learned to adapt and get along in a way that we hadn't ever before. And we're just spending so much time. We have family rituals now that we just didn't Mm -hmm. have the time for. Um, And so in a weird way, I'm actually going to be kind of sad when when all of this kind of comes to an end and the kids go back to school and husband goes back to work and we go back to doing our stuff. And, um, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. I feel exactly the same way. It's, uh, you know, there's pros and cons of course, but yeah, someday I think we're going to look back on this time and remember it yeah. fondly, you know, when totally. all the, the tantrums and stuff have faded away from our memory, yeah. <laughs> we'll remember all, all of the good times yeah. from this time. Yeah. Um, But anyway, let's get into today's episode. Today we have on a very special guest, Kevin Bupp. He is the founder of Sunrise Capital Investors, and he invests predominantly in mobile home parks, which Mm -hmm. is a fascinating asset class, especially because they always say that mobile home parks are recession resistant. Right. Yes. And it's something that um, we have dabbled in a little bit, you know, in over the last couple of years in preparation for today and this time Mm -hmm. that we're in now. Um, And we always said that that was coming soon. So it was really interesting. I think perfect timing to have Kevin on the show to talk to the audience about why, why mobile home parks and especially why now um, is a good time. And he gave us uh, his sort of top three tips of for investors on, you know, why uh, mobile home park investing is recession resistant. And so, uh, you know, those top 
three things being supply and demand issues, as well as um, he mentioned something about in some instances where they're owning the just the lots and they don't actually own the actual home. And so uh, in some instances, when people lose their jobs or lose their inability to pay, they would sell those. But in the meantime, while they're looking to sell those, they're still able to collect lot rents, which is different, obviously, than multifamily and what we do. And then the last thing that he had mentioned was around, uh, you know, a lot of the inefficiencies that are available to these two buyers like him and his partners um, in the way of a a lot of people who own these mobile home parks are the mom and pop operators. So, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there that I guess may not be there with, you know, multifamily and, and what we do. So, yeah, it's just a, it was such a great episode. Uh, Kevin has been, you know, investing for the last 16 years. So, you know, a lot of people are always looking for people who have been doing this for a really long time. And Kevin is definitely one of those people and has loads of information to uh, share with everyone. So, yeah, and he goes into depth about all that happened with his portfolio back in the last recession, which was brutal. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, All right. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Kevin Bupp. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing great, Annie. How about yourself? And Julie, pleasure to meet you as well. Thanks for having me here. Of course. Now, Kevin, you invest predominantly in mobile home parks, which is not exactly Mm -hmm. the first thing that most people think about when they think about real estate investing. But I have heard that mobile home parks tend to be pretty recession resistant, which is incredibly relevant right now, given Mm -hmm. where we are in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic as we record this and on the precipice of a potential recession. So Mm -hmm. let's start with your story and then we'll dig into your outlook and your perspectives on this crisis as well as your current investment strategy. Sure. So start by telling us maybe how you got started in investing in real estate and how you found your way to mobile home parks of all things. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's a, it's a great question. I'll try to keep this short, but I am um, 40, year uh, 40 years old now and I got started uh, 21 years ago. I was 19. I always like to say that real estate kind of found me. I didn't find it. And so I feel very blessed and grateful for that. You know, I was just uh, going to college and uh, not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life other than just, you know, get those four years out of the way and then figure it out after that. And ultimately, a gentleman by the name of David introduced me to this business. He was a local landlord. I met him through a girl I was dating at the time. And uh, he was about 25 years older than I. And uh, he owned a bunch of single family and, and small multifamily properties. And Lived a pretty cool lifestyle, very different than my, you know, my upbringing, and uh, this seemed to have a lot of flexibility in his day, and seemed to have uh, not many cares in the world, just based on my perception of uh, how he kind of carried himself. And ultimately, we we grew, grew a pretty tight friendship over the first couple of months of me meeting him, and he essentially invited me uh, to a three day boot camp that him and his partner were supposed to attend down in Philadelphia, and uh, his partner couldn't go, so he said, "Hey, you want to come? Uh, you know, I'm not sure what your plans are after after school, but you know if." If you have an interest in what I do, this would you know be a good introduction to it. And so I went. I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but I figured he had spent about three grand on these tickets, <laughs> and that uh, I might as well take advantage of it and go see if I could learn something uh, that could benefit me, you know, in years ahead. And ultimately, I was uh, intrigued, overwhelmed. Uh, I had a lot of emotions rolling through my body. But you know, when I left that that three day event, I ultimately said, you know, I met a lot of people there during those three days that. I didn't feel they were any smarter than I. They knew a lot more than I did about the business, but I didn't feel like they were any more intelligent than I was and that they were doing very, very big things. And that was exciting to me. And so ultimately, I came back and said, David, you know, how can I help you with your business? Like, I don't know where to get started here. I'm overwhelmed. I'm excited. But like, I, like, I don't know where to go from this point forward. How can I help you with your business? You know, is there things I can do so that I can not just be around you like on a friendship level, but like be around you when you're, you know, transacting your your deals or talking to residents or talking to contractors. I just want to be around to absorb all this information. So ultimately I became, you know, I didn't really have a title, but call me his executive assistant for a period of about a year um, where in between tending bar in the evenings and going to the school, I was at his home office out in the field. I was wherever he needed me to be doing, you know, whatever he needed me to do, even if I was going to pick up like coffee at the store, I'd just be there for him to help him out. And ultimately I learned a ton. I got introduced to all of his, you know, his personal relationships with private lenders, 
uh, got to see, you know, uh, just how the process started from A to Z as far as working with contractors, doing rehabs, working with tenants, signing leases, you know, evictions, what have you. And so uh, I bought my first property when I was 20 years old, uh, utilizing a lot of the connections that David had, uh, had helped me with and uh, some of the savings I had from tending bar. And uh, that was the start of it. So fast forward to about, uh, about eight years moving forward, built up quite a large portfolio of single family properties and multifamily properties, as well as some other commercial real estate and uh, lost it all in 2008. And then ultimately was introduced to mobile home parks in about 2011, as I was working to rebuild myself from the catastrophe that had occurred in the years prior. Uh, again, by accident, I came across mobile home parks just through a mutual friend uh, who uh, I ultimately went and had a lunch with just to talk business and to, you know enjoy the day. And uh, I never knew he owned mobile home parks, found out that he owned three of them. It was doing quite well and basically sold me on all the reasons why I need to put some energy into learning about that niche and why there was a lot of opportunity there. And so that was back in 2011. I bought my first park in 2012 to either prove him wrong or prove him right. <laughs> and uh, ended up proving him right and uh, bought another one a year after and then a, a couple more the following year. And ultimately formed our company about four years ago, Sunrise Capital Investors. Now we syndicate mobile home parks uh, across the country, we own parks in 13 different states today. And uh, that's been the core of our business. So that's that's like the condensed version of, of, uh, <laughs> of my, my background. <laughs> wow. So it all started with you sort of noticing that this guy was, you know, seemed to have a pretty good life, a life that you wanted. And then you went off and then you tried to emulate what he was doing and figure out That's what it. he was doing so that you could have that life yourself. That's it. I mean, I grew up in a blue collar family. I never went without, we weren't poor, you know, we didn't have a lot, but we didn't have a little, you know, we had right, we were right in the middle. We went on one family vacation a year that my parents saved up for our year, our year long. And, you know, it just, we, we had everything we needed. It was, you know, to me, it, we lived a normal life and I, you know, we surrounded ourselves with folks in our neighborhood that live similar lifestyles. So I just didn't really know any different until I met David and just uh, you know, opened my eyes to just a, really a different world, a different way of thinking about, you know, why am I going to school? My parents went to school to go get a job afterwards and, and worked the same career for 35, 40 years. Not all that happy with what they were doing, but they knew they had to do it and get to retirement age. And that way they had some income streams thereafter. And then they could go enjoy life, right? Like that's, that's how I was raised. And David lived a life very different than that, which I thought was pretty cool. So what did your parents think when you were 20 years old? Most people at 20 years old are not buying properties. You're 20 years old, you're attending bar, you're going to school, and you buy your first property. Were you, was your family like, ooh, Kevin's crazy? Or were they like, wow, Kevin's like figuring it out? No, they thought I was absolutely crazy. <laughs> and they, they actually thought I was crazy even when I was just hanging out with David. You, know, you got to remember, David was, David was about their age. <laughs> and so I'm hanging out with this guy, this, this guy that basically is my parents' age. And like, they're wondering, why does this guy want to hang out with this 20 year old? Like, yeah. you know, they just have these weird, creepy mm, thoughts going through their head. Right. Like, what's going on here? And uh, so initially they were kind of weirded out about that when they realized that, you know, that I was excited about learning something new. Like, like they were appreciative of that, but they also didn't, they just, even to today, like they still don't understand the world that I live in, the world that we built with my business and why I do what I do. They just, I don't think they really grasp that mindset. And so they thought I was absolutely insane. I had seven grand in my name that I had saved up, you know, tending bar, you know, making tips every evening. And uh, I used every, literally every penny of that to buy that first property along with some private money. And um, they thought I was the that was the dumbest decision that they've ever heard of. And I bought it in a part of town. You know, everyone lives inside this bubble and it's hard to, to, to actually get outside that bubble and see it from different perspectives. So they were born and raised in, in this town I grew up in and um, as was I, but they had a, they've seen, you know, over decades, they've seen areas change, get from bad to good, good to bad. And I bought in the part of town that they always basically, if we drove through that part of town, they locked our doors. <laughs> like we locked our doors. They're like, you keep the doors locked until we get to this point, you know? And so th they thought I was also crazy because I bought in, you know, what they deemed to be a new right. neighborhood that like, you're going to get shot. And you know, it wasn't the greatest neighborhood, but it was like a transitional neighborhood. And uh, there's like, you're an idiot. <laughs> what are you doing? But anyway, it turned out well. I, I think it's really hard for other generations, the older generations, to 
really, you know, identify with what we're doing because it was so ingrained in them that this is what you do is you go to school and you work a job for 30, 40 years, and then you live your life when you're in your 60s. And that's the struggle that I think Annie and I face on a daily basis, even with people who are our age, because they're, they're so trained to really think that the way to the path to freedom and the path to happiness is to work, you know, a job and stay there for 30 years and then retire at the end. So I think that that's, mm-hmm. um, that's a tough hurdle for a lot of people to um, overcome. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think the one saving grace for me is growing up, I just, just academically, I never enjoyed school. I'm very different today. Like I'm the complete opposite. I love learning. I, I like, I, I love education. I just didn't love the, I, I didn't, really understand your know, traditional education in comparison to, you know, uh, learning about what it is you enjoy learning about. And they, and, you know, there's many different structures now. We understand that everyone has different learning abilities and they, they uh, receive things in different ways. Back then we didn't understand that everyone got right. taught the same exact way. Right. I hated school. Like I just yeah. enjoy it. I did it cause I had to. Yeah. So I think I've always been like one that's kind of pushed against the grain. That's always going a slight different direction than everyone else, either my family or, or friends that I had. And, uh, and that to me, like that was, I didn't know anyone else other than David that was doing that. And to me, like that was exciting because it was very different than what everyone else was doing. Cause I was not excited about going the route my parents went. I just right. didn't know any different. Right. So. Which I think is true for so many of us real estate investors. I know it was definitely true for me, who I am today. Certainly not the same person I was 20 years ago, academically speaking, and you know the interest in learning and all of that stuff. But real estate yeah. opened so many doors, and um, it's been such a fun journey so far. Um, so one thing that you talked about that you know, given everything that's going on, that I really want to dig into is you said that in 2008 you lost it all. So I'm just mm-hmm. curious, what did that mean? What what led what led to that? What mistakes did you make? Um, and how did you, you know, in 2011 when you were rebuilding everything, how did you reposition yourself and recreate yourself to be able to, you know, sustain everything that we're going through today? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, looking back at, at 2008 uh, and in the years prior of like building up to that, I got really good at the model, at the small model David had taught me, you know, buying single family properties and turning them into rental units. I had to end up, I moved from Pennsylvania to Florida in 2002. So I only I stayed in Pennsylvania investing for a couple of years and then I moved down to Florida and that's when I really ramped things up. And um, looking back, there was a lot of inefficiencies that began to build in my business, mostly in the single family side of our business. Uh, and that, you know, uh, was a result of owning properties in multi, you know, multiple different counties, hundreds of properties in multiple different counties, inefficiencies with the management side, the repairs and maintenance side. In addition to that, you know, I always called myself a cash flow investor back then. And I really don't think I fully understood or was being honest with myself as to were these properties, not just individually as a portfolio as well, were they truly sustainable cash flowing assets? Forget about right. what the equity looks like on paper, right? Because this, mm-hmm. this is back in the run-up prior to 2008, Florida, I mean, like values were just going insane. We're seeing double digit appreciations every year for many years straight. And, and, you know, across the board, you know, we looked at like our leverage point. We had very low leverage. We were buying with the margin of safety. And again, we were making, we were producing cash flow, but not sustainably across the entirety of the portfolio. And so ultimately what occurred is it was like a, uh, I mean, there was multiple nails that got put in the coffin. A couple of the big factors were just the, uh, the a lot of speculative builders down here in Southwest Florida back in that day. Very different times back then than, than here now. There was thousands of rooftops that were being built for populations that weren't necessarily coming. And so the the first thing where we had a big blip in our business model was as soon as these builders stopped selling these new houses that were built, they basically knew they weren't going to be able to get rid of them. They had, they had loans to service. And so they essentially started renting these new homes out, all this inventory out. And a lot of the markets where we owned a lot of older inventory, you know, homes that were 20, 25 years old, what have you. And so within a period of eight months, we had a pretty significant uh, non-renewal rate or, or exodus rate, I call it the exodus rate, as far as people moving out and new people not moving back in because there was a ton of supply on that market, just an oversupply. And it was all new and they were leasing it for not much more than what we were leasing these older homes for. So number one, our vacancy rate skyrocketed pretty quickly. Number two, within a period of eight months, most of our properties were upside down. I mean, Florida got just smashed. I mean, we were... So basically all that you know, all, all, all the uh, uh, the equity that we had on paper that we were always excited about and touting basically evaporated uh, very, very quickly. And then 
all the other inefficiencies that we already knew existed started really heavily weighing on our business. You know, all the, the repairs and maintenance, the inefficiencies there, the inefficiencies of owning, you know, uh, uh, properties in multiple counties with the management side of the business. And then to really tie it all together, we had a lot of cross-collateralized properties. You know, what we would typically do on the single family side of our business, because we had single family and then we had multifamily. Multifamily was a very passive business for us, but the single family was like our, our core. Uh, we would basically go buy, you know, eight to 10 properties uh, with private money uh, and then ultimately go get a cross collateralized loan from a, you know, a couple of local commercial banks that we had relationships with and then put, you know, one line on all eight or 10 or what have you, those little, little tranches, little packages of the properties. And so whenever we had an issue with one, two or three of those properties, ultimately those all 10 of them started having issues. And uh, this was also the point in time back then, there was no such thing as a loss mitigation department in banks. It just didn't, like that department did not exist until 2008 occurred. And so we started feeling the pain very quickly uh, uh, back then. However, banks weren't feeling it yet. They weren't feeling it to the point to where they were ready to do workouts or loan restructuring and, and what have you. Like today, I think we're much more aware of that. Although, you know, the agency loans, I know they've already offered like loan deferrals and forbearance, what have you. The other lenders have not yet, but I think that they will get there much quicker than they probably did in 2008. Um, there won't be as much of a delay there. And so anyway, it was just a, this was a, 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 a you know, a, a, a snowball effect that we experienced. But back to the original point of what we've changed with our business today is we're much more honest with ourselves as far as the sustainability of our assets. And are they really cash flowing assets? Forget about the appreciation. Appreciation is great. It's icing on the cake. It also can evaporate fairly quickly. Cap rates go up. That appreciation is gone, right? But can they sustain through a downturn? And what does that cash flow model look like? Can they sustain for ourselves, for our investors and everyone else involved in that deal? Can they make it through a downturn without completely becoming irrelevant investments? And so anyway, that, th those are some of the big factors that really hurt us. And so to, to tie it all together, we also had multi multifamily investments back then. And um, it was interesting. That was never a core of our business. We ended up just buying. We had about 500 units, you know, 40 units, 60 units, smaller, smaller buildings. We never put a lot of emphasis on buying those. We just, they were brought to us by brokers. We bought them. We didn't really, I don't like to say we didn't know what we were doing. That business kind of ran itself. We should have just switched <laughs> our emphasis and actually started focusing on the multifamily stuff because those actually, those did fairly well. They all, they all got affected during the downturn. And we had more vacancies than normal, what have you. But the only reason that we ultimately had to essentially exit out of those is we had a lot of short-term commercial debt back then, you know, five-year terms, 20-year amortizations, debt was coming due in a couple of years. And by that point in time, you know, our credit was challenged. You know, our liquidity was uh, basically next to nothing. And uh, we couldn't, and, and there really wasn't new debt available in 2009, 2010. It just it didn't exist. And so our entire business from... 2008 to 2010, we essentially you know, lost about a thousand properties in total and, uh, and had to either get back to the bank or short sale or fire sale, you know, many different things that we went through there. But in any event, I, I just rambled on there. I don't know if I really answered your original question as to, you know, what were the challenges that, that we really faced with that business and how, how's it changed today? But uh, I hope I at least gave some insight to that. No, yeah, that was really great. I mean, I think that that's a lesson that's well learned in terms of looking at cash flow. And it's certainly something that we talk about all the time when we talk with our investors in terms of, you know, people are always asking, well, what what should I be looking for? And we're, you know, I think since Annie and I got into this, it's always been that the recession is coming tomorrow because we had already, you know, gone for so long. And, you know, that's something that when we look at deals and we look at the viability of deals, we're always looking at the cash flow. Appreciation, the way I see yes. it is is great, but it's it's future talk, right? It's like it may happen that's and it, it may not. So cash flow in my bank account today is what's real. And that's, you know, how we always look at deals too. So I'm curious when you're doing your underwriting for your current deals, or let's say like five months ago, you're doing your underwriting. What were you mm -hmm. underwriting your year over year rent growth? Um, you know, for, what were you projecting to? Was it, you know, I mean, we typically, yeah, we typically underwrite it to, you know, right around 3%. Okay. You know, it, it depends. So like, we're also value add investors. So, you know, in the mobile home park right. space, it's notorious for, for, you know, mom and pops not keeping up with what the market lot rents are in any uh -huh. given area. And so, you know, typically we would look at, just give an example, if, it, if the market was $500 a month lot rent and we were buying a park that was at, you know, 250 today currently, mm -hmm. you know, we might have a, the, the very first rent bump might be significantly higher than what the following years are. But we'd try to look at like a five-year trend. How can we get to market mm -hmm. in five years? We stretch mm -hmm. it over a five-year period. However, the one different factor of mobile home parks to that of apartments, the one insulation factor I like to call it is that 
majority of the residents in these parks, they own their own home. And so there's like a shared equity involvement between the owners of the park and also the owners of the homes themselves. And so it's not as simple as like, well, I don't like the $40 rent increase, you know, this first go around and that you have a five-year plan to basically raise it $200 over the next couple of years. They can't just simply move. They can, but there's a much larger, more expensive process involved with them moving their home and going somewhere else. And ultimately, if they did go somewhere else, they would be paying the market rent anyway. And so there's not, there's not really a good lateral move option for most of the residents and uh, in the mobile home park space. So um, mm-hmm. in any event, to answer your question, 3% is on a normal rent increase annual basis is 3% is what we underwrite. Mm-hmm. And, and then what about vacancy or do you, how does that, how does vacancy work in, in what you guys do? Yeah. Still I, I mean, yeah, we, we do, we do because you, you have situations where even if they own their own home, you know, they could, you know, they could pass away. They still might lose their job or they can't, they can't pay, you know, uh-huh. they have to actually abandon a home or, or move it somewhere else or sell it. Uh-huh. And so there, there is a vacancy factor there. And depending on the, the park, the market that it's in anywhere between two and a half to 5% is uh, traditional. And then how does that, these numbers that you were underwriting to, like, let's say five months ago, how does that look like now? That is the million dollar question. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the good thing is we, we were not in the middle of any deals okay. um, when this occurred. And so we, the timing just kind of played out, I like guess not right for us, but uh, to where we're not, we're not having to kill deals or we're not having to go back right. and retreat. Um, we buy deals in fund structures and we just wrapped up our last fund at the end of last year okay. with the intent of going out another one quarter two of this year that more than likely will probably be delayed given the current state of affairs that we're in. Mm-hmm. And so as far as, I don't know, I don't know how to answer that question. I mean, I, until the dust settles a little bit, I don't think yeah. anyone can answer that question. In fact, right. I just had a phone call this morning with a gentleman that brought three off-market deals to us to, to, just to take a look at. And they're probably deals that we would have considered mm-hmm. a few, uh, you know, a few months back or even, you know, a few years back, what have you. But today, based on their asking price, based on the cap rate, based on the available debt that right. we knew would have gotten put on back then versus today. Right. Like, there's, there's so many unknowns. I, I like unless it's an absolute home run, we're not even going to consider buying anything until the dust settles a little bit and we see how all this shakes out. So right. I think there's going to be a lot of weaknesses exposed over the coming months mm-hmm. and even the coming years yep. for you know businesses that were on kind of already faulty foundations. Yeah. And, uh, and I want to be prepared to, you know, to jump on those opportunities, but also I want to make sure that we don't become one of those victims right. that ultimately buy into an you know, unstable environment trying to catch a falling knife, what have you, and realize that it was uh, the wrong decision. So we're basically hoarding cash. You know, we're basically saying as liquid as possible. Mm -hmm. We basically stopped a lot of our cap, most of the CapEx or unnecessary projects in our communities and, uh, and just really kind of standing tight. Right. On the sidelines, watching, waiting, and uh, just seeing how ultimately these next couple of months, more importantly, are going to play out. Yeah. 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 How so, about you, ladies? I'd, lo- I'd love to hear from your perspective. Uh, not that I'm not going to try to shift this interview around, but I mean, just I've had you've had many of these conversations as of I. Have you been underwriting deals still over the last couple of weeks? If so, what are some of the changes that you've seen being that you're in a very different industry than we are in the multifamily space? Yeah, I mean, we're still we're still looking at deals, but we're in the position where we had deals under contract, so deals have fallen through. So we're in the position right now where uh, one deal that we had uh, underwritten in January is, you know, obviously much different than than now in terms of the yeah. opportunity and the deal, and you know, tried to renegotiate and do a retrade and didn't work out, so we had to back mm-hmm. out of that deal, uh, which you know means that we lost some money and uh, was a tough one for us to to swallow. But we have another deal that's on the table that we're looking to also retrade, um, and we were able to renegotiate a better price on that one. But it's you know it's tough to raise right now. A lot of people are uh, you know. Either they're losing yeah. their jobs or unsure of what the future holds. And like you said, to your point, it's like, how do we even accurately underwrite um, unless the deal is a home run, which this one we feel like it is. It's really difficult to be able to pinpoint whether, you know, what the underwriting is going to be like on, on a deal and to be able to, um, you know, identify the vacancy and identify, you know, um, uh, occupancy and all of these things. But this particular deal is a very good cash flowing deal. It's an A-class asset. So a little 
bit uh, no value add. So a little bit different from what we've traditionally done. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. in terms of risk, uh, you know, a lot a lot lower. Um, you know, no no value add, high cash flow. It's kind of a no brainer. Our break even point is in mm-hmm. the you know fifty percent range. So things would have to get pretty dire before um, you know things would look bad on this one. So yeah, I mean we're still. I'm yeah. I'm the same. I'm ready to buy. This is the time that I've been waiting for. <laughs> I got into real estate investing in 2009, and since then I have been waiting for this time. But I know I think right now is too early to say what's going to happen and to really be able to identify the good opportunities. I think that those good opportunities are going to come, you know, here in in the coming months to a year. Yeah, it's going to take time for that pain to really play out. And ultimately, also, you know, depending on how the government might step in, you know, there's a, you know, the CMBS lenders and, and, and the banks that are holding debt right now, especially in, in some of the other industries, not multifamily, not mobile home parks, but retail and lodging, man, they're getting, they're getting yeah. absolutely crushed. And mm-hmm. so there will be a trickle down effect that ultimately uh, that plays out if some of those other industries fail in a big way. Right. And, uh, it, it just, uh, you know, one of the things that we use as an indicator. You know, you got the you know the public sector, so the REITs, and then you got the private sector, which is us. And there are two different ways that the public and the private sectors look at investments. And you'll see that obviously a lot of the REITs they lost a lot of valuation over the last couple of weeks. REITs are, for the most part, institutional investors are forward looking. They're forward looking. They're trying to project out based on discounted cash flow of like what things are going to look like in the coming years. Whereas mm-hmm. private investors, such as ourselves, we're looking at T12s, right? Mm-hmm. We're looking at the at the prior year's performance hoping that that's going to indicate what the future performance is going to do for that property. And so, right. you know, again, one of our considerations is that these, these institutional groups, not that they're smart than us, but they've got a, you know, pretty high pay grades on their staff and, um, and analysts and what have you, just watching what they're doing and looking at the private sector and kind of taking it the middle ground of the two and just kind of holding tight and, and waiting to see again. Once, I don't know when the dust is going to settle. I don't think anyone knows. Again, that, that's part of the uncertainty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Every day, like there's some type of new... Uh, you know, a, a news release as far as like it's going to be extended another two weeks, or you know, we're thinking this might run through summer now, or it might end before summer. You know, just so much uncertainty everywhere in the world that I know that deals will never be gone forever. Meaning, like you know, that anxiety that some people feel of like if I don't buy today, I'll never be able to get a deal. And mm-hmm. I, that that same feeling was felt leading up to two thousand eight. And the same feeling has been felt leading up mm-hmm. to this point in time that we're sitting at today. Mm-hmm. The last three years, everyone's fighting for deals. Everyone's like razor thin margins. Right. And so I know that there will be opportunity coming. And I know that if we miss out on an opportunity, there will be the next one that comes down the road and you know the next door will open what happened. So just mm-hmm. patience. That's, that's kind of what I learned as go, after going leading up into 2008. And then thereafter is, is patience is where, you know, where the most value is. Being a patient investor mm-hmm. and just waiting and watching and making educated decisions and not jumping the gun on anything because knowing that there's going to be another opportunity coming down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I think (laughs) a lot of the rest of the world, especially those investors who jumped on the bandwagon within the last couple of years, they're like, Oh, I'm out. Like uh, I'm leaving. This is, this is too hard for me. (laughs) And the rest of us who have been in this for a lot longer, we're like, we're at the starting line with our carts empty. We're like ready to go. We're like, come on, come on. Where are those deals? Where are those deals? And I think um, you're right. Yeah. I think within the next several months, we're going to see a lot start to come on the market. Yeah. I, I wasn't in a position in 2009, 10, and 11 for many reasons, just dealing with the uh, the carryover from the catastrophe that happened uh, after 2008. But also, I just uh, not sticking my head in the sand, but like it was like my world kind of ended for a period of time. Uh, my little bubble that I was in in, in uh, Florida in general, every investor I knew in Florida got just as crushed as I did. Even folks that had been through a couple other downturns, mm-hmm. and so I, I had a hard time getting myself out of that bubble and actually getting back up on the saddle and uh, getting ready for the fight. And uh, and I promise I will not make that mistake this time around because I, we didn't buy that first property until 2012, and so we actually we still had a good couple of years. Of phenomenal deals that were, you know, kind of a leftover from the recession. But, uh, you know, we missed a, a couple of the prime buying years. And mm-hmm. um, I, I will not make that mistake again. I promise you that. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We'll get back to our conversation with Kevin in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid, like we were, that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. 
Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. And now... Back to our chat with Kevin Bupp. When, when that happened, when you lost the thousand properties in yeah. your portfolio, you know, why didn't you, what, why didn't you just throw in the towel? Why not just like, you're like, oh my gosh, I just lost everything. Yeah. Your family's probably like, see, told you. And so how come you didn't just walk away and say, I'm going to go lead a normal life and get a job and just go to work nine to five. What made you come back to it and keep wanting to learn and keep uh, going in real estate? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, number one, that was a normal life to me because you remember I I got I, I was a, I tend I literally have never had a real job. I guess you could say I attended bar, and I started buying property, and so I never really had a nine to five. I, I just so that that was normal to me is actually starting a business and kind of making it for myself. But I um there was a couple of years the three years following that were really tough emotionally. Thank God I did not have a family back then. Thank God I wasn't married. I didn't have kids to support. Like. I was kind of on my own. I just actually had met the woman who is now my wife today. I literally met her about three weeks before I defaulted on like a big <laughs> chunk of properties. And she married and, uh, you anyway. It was some, it was some, and that's, it's funny that you bring that up because I, I, I just kind of knew I'd been, you know, like looking and dating for a number of years and I knew when I met her, but I was like, man, I'm not going to, like when I met her, I had a house on the beach, had, you know, vehicles, boat. I mean, like I, just, I had a pretty cool lifestyle and, um, I knew that that was about to go away very quickly. I knew that it was going to get very, very ugly. And so I remember we were riding the bikes one day down at my, my beach house and uh, we were riding our bikes, like I forget where we're going, just ride, cruise around the neighborhood. And uh, I wanted to let her know how bad it was about to get because I, I didn't want to lead her down like this path. Right. And I knew she wasn't with me because of money. She had her own money. Mm-hmm. She had a you know, really good job and education. So like, it wasn't like a money thing for her. Like, you know, I didn't think she was a gold digger or something, but I just I also didn't <laughs> want her to you know, to, to get on a, on a train that was basically going to derail yeah. uh, in, in the very near future. And then I knew it was going to get, I didn't know how ugly it was going to get, but I knew it was going to be pretty ugly. And so I let her know. And she, I don't think she really understood to the uh, the gravity of the situation. I don't think she really <laughs> processed it. Um, but I think she stuck by my side and, um, and, and was there for me. But uh, as far as like getting back, you know, getting back into it and not just getting a normal nine to five, I did, I will tell you that during those three years, I focused a lot on health and, and just uh, being well, that's the only thing I really had control. I felt like, Louis, I felt like I'd lost control over everything. I couldn't mm-hmm. control anything else in my life other than how I felt, mm-hmm. you know, physically and mentally. And so I put a lot of emphasis there. And I started a few other businesses outside of real estate. I just, I was so distraught and just had a bad taste in my, my, my mouth about real estate. And again, all my contacts and friends were Florida-based and they were in, in, in just much distraught. So I never left that bubble for a period of time. All I felt was like the world had ended. And so what I wanted to do is focus on me. And I started a couple of businesses that were health and fitness related that were completely opposite of real estate. I knew I needed to make money and I wanted to have fun doing it. Uh, not that I didn't have fun in real estate, but it surely wasn't fun when you know, uh, <laughs> you know, dealing with process servers knocking on your door and things like that and lawsuits and what have you. Uh, oh. And uh, ultimately, the, the fire of real estate, three years of those other businesses, I, I had fun with them. They made money. 
I knew I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna turn them into something huge. I just didn't have an interest in doing that. I was just trying to survive at that point. But that the fire burning of real estate was always there, and the flame never really went out. And uh, I don't know. I just woke up one day in 2011. Was like. I got to get back back here and uh, and start buying some opportunities. Everyone knows the old adage of you buy low, sell high. You buy when there's blood in the streets. And I'm like, I'm, a, I'm an idiot. What am I doing here? Like, mm-hmm. why am I sticking my head in the sand? Why am I trying to avoid what is now probably some of the greatest opportunities that's, that, that have ever existed? Right. And so that's ultimately what I did. I jumped back in in 2011, started re-educating myself as to the you know the, this changed landscape that now existed because the world was very different yeah. in 2011 in every aspect mm-hmm. yeah. than what it was in 2008. And so it took me about a year to buy the first property after I made that decision and, um, and uh, I've been running ever since. So. so I have a quick question before we transition into um, the investing for good impact round. I know that it's always been said that mobile home parks are recession resistant. And again, mm-hmm. given everything that's going on, why should investors turn to mobile home parks You know, in the years coming forward? Tell us a little bit real briefly about that. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of factors. I mean, simple supply and demand factors um, mm-hmm. you know, are one of the really big ones that really stole me initially on mobile home parks. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the only asset class that has a diminishing supply. And so there's not new supply coming onto the market. Uh, any new supply that's coming on, it's, it's not outpacing the parks that are being shut down or bought or redeveloped into something you know, of a higher and better use. And so mm-hmm. the supply demand factor is huge. And it really, it represents probably one of the best options for affordable housing in any market across the country. And I'm not talking like tr- rundown trailer parks, you know, that are basically the equivalent of like a D-class apartment building, right? Like there's all different right. classes of mobile home parks. And I think that's where the, the negative stereotype comes into where people are like, oh, mobile home parks. You could say the same thing about apartment complexes, single family homes, right? You got mm-hmm. A class, B class, C class, and you got the parts of town that you just don't go in. You got mm-hmm. the slumlords that run, you know, r- run really bad uh, operations. Uh, we stay away from that stuff. And so, but just generally speaking, you know, the C, C and B grade parks in any city across any state whatsoever, it represents probably the most affordable option for housing in that given marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, our average mm-hmm. lot rents across the board, you know, anywhere from like a, the high markets up in like New York where we own stuff to, you know, Kentucky and Alabama where it's on the lower end of the spectrum. Our average lot rents about $350 a month. Mm-hmm. There is nowhere you can live in any one of those markets with a family in a nice, safe location with school, good schools, what have you for that, that price. And so knowing that there weren't new supply coming in the market, knowing that we had an option that everyone was going to need forever. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there, there's n- never going to be a point in time where someone doesn't want to live for, um, you know, an affordable price point. And we know that yeah. there's not new affordable housing being built. Like we're not servicing mm-hmm. that need in this country at this point in time, right. other than existing supply. And so that was one of the big factors that attracted me to it. And also, if, you know, if someone in that park can't afford to live there, I know that there's many other folks out there. If we're in the right market, right school district, right location, there's a drove. I mean, we literally... Even through this pandemic, our ad, like we keep our, our our postings going for available units that we have for sale, what have you. It literally hasn't slowed down, and not mm. even a trickle. Which is, mm. a, I was shocked. Yeah, absolutely shocked that we just instilled protocols yesterday because we literally stopped showing for two weeks until we figured out what's going on with this pandemic. Yeah, and I want to like expose our our managers to mm-hmm. uh, you know to this health risk, and so we just instilled you know uh, protocols to where you know they're wearing gloves and masks and you know not meeting prospects directly in the units. We're doing virtual showings, what have you, because the demand hasn't gone down. So that, that, mm. that's a huge factor for us. Uh, good times, bad times. Demand is always there because everyone needs a nice, clean, safe, affordable house to live in a great location, right? Mm-hmm. Good school districts. In addition to that is there's this insulation factor that, uh, you know, uh, that I had kind of mentioned you know, in one of our you know, past conversations here today is most of the residents own their own home. Mm-hmm. And so the turnover rate is not the same as that in like an apartment complex. And so now I don't want to mislead the, the listeners. We do own some of the homes. So we have about 2000 lots in our portfolio and we own about 200 and give or take 50 homes, not by choice. It's just part of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, but the remaining folks own their own homes and it's incredibly expensive to, to move those homes. So what we have found is that our average uh, length of tenancy is 12 years. Oh. And so it's, it's very similar to that of a, of a single family home neighborhood. In mm-hmm. fact, what happens is if that person needs to move, let's say they get job transfer or whatever, they just need to move out of that area. Most of the time they don't move their home because it's too expensive. And so they typically put it up for sale, just like you would a single family home, mm-hmm. you know, put it up for sale, either with a realtor or themselves. They continue paying a lot rent. 
They show their home. Someone comes in and buys it. That new person gets approved for the community. They take over the responsibility of paying lot rent. And so even though we actually lost a tenant, we never had a hiccup in the actual the right. revenue coming in, the, the yeah. monthly lot rent coming in. So, uh, you know, those are some of the big factors. Uh, you know, one of the other big ones that really attract us to the space and still does today. So it's, it's changing landscape today. Lots of, lots of private equity and institutional investors have come into this niche over the past two years in, in droves. Um, and there's limited supply. And so it's created a lot of competition. But even then, it's still a very, a frag, a very fragmented marketplace. Lots of mom and pop operators, lots mm. of first generational owners that built these things 40, 50 years ago that are aging out of them. They're in their 80s now. Uh, they haven't done a great job of, uh, of running the communities as a professional operator. They haven't kept up with market rents. They haven't you know, kept up with mitigating or keeping expenses to a normalized level, what have you. And so there's still a lot of value add opportunity that exists in the space due to the fragmentation of the ownership. And so those are some of the big ones that really attracted us to the space. I could keep going on and on for another, you know, probably 30 minutes of uh, all the reasons we love it, but those are some of the big ones. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. And do you have information about all of this? I would assume on your website, I'm just curious if people want to learn more about mobile home park investing and, you know, all of these things that we could talk more about is, is there information on your website about all of this? Yeah, absolutely. So our company website is sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. You can go on there and get you'll get a ton of information about the industry uh, in general. Okay. And I also have a mobile home park investing podcast where we've got probably 110, 115 episodes. Okay. You know, they can go there. It's all free. And uh, basically, it's a lot of that podcast has been over the year, over the last four or five years, case studies of our business, you know, deals that we've done, you know, why okay. we pass on something, why we purchase something, how we've analyzed markets, you know, what we view as an opportunity, not as an opportunity, what have you. Just we, we go into the nitty gritty details of the business. And so I would start there as well. It's okay. free. You know, there's hundreds of hours of education there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that, that'd be where I would get started. If I, if I, if I were starting again, seven, or eight years ago, and all that stuff wasn't available, that's where I'd get my start. I got Great. one more question yeah. for you, which is you mentioned earlier that um, you do funds rather than invest, that's have correct. your investors invest directly in a single mobile home park. Can you talk about why that might be a particularly good strategy at this point um, in the market cycle? Yeah, I don't know if it really has to do with like uh, a good strategy based on the part of the market cycle that we're in. I, I can tell you the the reasons behind why we ended up going that route. I guess it's been about four years now. When we started syndicating, uh, we had the initial intentions uh, of, uh, of of just doing deal specific syndications. And now I want to preface it by saying that our average deal size is much smaller than that of in the multifamily space. Like our average deal size back then, it was probably like one to three million. Now it's probably close. It's probably like three to five million, mm. but still very small in comparison to you know what you guys are used to in the multifamily mm-hmm. sector. And so leading up to the point where before we started syndicating, we were doing our own deals. We basically, we, we went a number of years, proved the concept, you know, built our business, built the infrastructure before we ever started raising capital from outside investors. Mm-hmm. And we were really good with deal flow. That's one of the things I kind of carried over from my single family days, you know, going direct to owner um, and just building that, that, that stream of deals that were off market that weren't relying on brokers or you know, folks bringing them to us. And so we were very confident in our deal flow. We had done a great job leading up to the point of syndication. And we had a couple of deals in the pipeline uh, right before we started our first fund. A couple of those deals fell out and then we had like two left. I'm like, okay, well, we're just going to syndicate these individually. doesn't make sense to, to do anything else. However, the next like 30 days, we had like three deals come back alive. And all of a sudden, we found ourselves in a situation where we had like five deals in contract. And mm. we started looking at the logistics of actually you know, right. doing five individual deal raises, the costs associated with the legal of doing yep. five individual. I'm like, that makes no sense whatsoever. And so let's give our investors some diversity. You know, these are in you know, three different markets, these five different deals. Um, they all have uh, you know, different components to them that are attractive in nature and will help diversify the risk as well. And so that was the initial thought behind why, why do a fund? And as we got into that fund and then ultimately opened up a second larger fund, um, we realized that there, in addition, there were some other big benefits other than diversity for our investors and also logistically and, you know, uh, keeping legal expenses down is the buying power. And so I'll give you an example. Uh, last year, we, we just closed out our second fund last year at the end of last year, uh, 2019. And uh, there, there are a couple of deals, uh, you know, it was a tight landscape. I mean, everyone's, you know, fighting for deals. And there's a couple of deals that came our way last year that we probably would have missed out on if we didn't have the ability to actually be a cash buyer. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. one of those deals was a, literally it was a 30-day DD close period total. Like, mm-hmm. and there was three deals in a portfolio. 
that was challenging in and of itself. There was a lot of other interested parties there. The only reason that we became the selected buyer is that we literally paid cash for that deal. We knew we wouldn't be able to get the financing lined up in time. We started the financing process, but we knew that it would probably trail another 30 days behind when we yeah. actually closed. And so we had another deal just like that as well, that same, you know, the same year. So we bought four deals that we probably wouldn't have been a real buyer for. We had gotten passed on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but being that we could actually close cash and we had liquidity to do that, made us you know, the selected party. And so the buying power behind it is, is huge. And so um, you know, just some of, the, some, of the one, some of the benefits that we see. You know, again, our niche is very different to yours. One of the downsides that I, I tell everyone, everyone thinks, you know, fun, though, I can just go raise a bunch of money and you know, have all this money sitting around you know, to have buying power. It doesn't really work that way. I mean, typically, if you got the money in, it's accruing prep if you've got your structure that way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very expensive money. And so you got to be very confident in your deal flow. I mean, mm-hmm. like if, if you're not a person that has steady deal traffic coming in, you're, you're continually raising capital, then you're going to get yourself in a pickle to where you're not going to have deals coming in. You've got accrued capital and accrued pref building up and ultimately just closing your gap of any type of reward that you're going to get on the back end, uh, being the mm-hmm. GP or the sponsor of the deal. So uh, there's pros, there's cons with it. I don't think one way is better than the other. It's really a what works best for our firm and what works best for this deal and, and our investor base. That's really it. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. All right. Should we move into the last part of the show? Let's do it. Um, we're going to ask you a couple of questions around investing for good. So the first question is around investing in yourself. So what is one way that your investments are helping you to live a better life? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I've always been a fan of you know uh, flexibility and mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of the type of business I'm in and and also you know, how we and try to empower our employees and you know my partner that I have like we all kind of have the same mindset of you know we're all performance based meaning mm-hmm. that like we don't work in an office nine to five structure. We actually had an office up to like two months ago. But we don't have like a structured environment to where you know you're there nine to five Monday through Friday get your work done. Like everyone knows what the expectations are, get it done. And so that, that type of flexibility and mindset has allowed me to do what I enjoy doing the most, which is actually spending time with my family. I love, mm-hmm. you know, we travel a ton as a family. We spend a lot of time here in Florida, you know, on our boat, you know, just doing mini trips, going out of the country. I mean, like, it, anyway, it gets, it gives me the, uh, the opportunity to be devoted as a father, as a husband and, you know, take advantage of those special moments and create mm-hmm. those special memories that I'd say one of the biggest regrets I've heard over the years of folks that have always been like older mentors of mine mm-hmm. is that, that they've missed yeah. out on those special years and they structured their business the wrong way. They might've done really well. They completely missed what was most valuable and that was that family time. And mm-hmm. so I, I vowed many, even David, David, David was a victim of it. I saw it with him. I hope he doesn't listen to this, but his relationship with his son was, was, wasn't great and still not today. He never figured that out. Mm-hmm. And that was sad for me to watch. So anyway, that's one of the things that this business and uh, this you know, uh, uh, real estate in general has allowed for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And there's so much of the reason why I got into what we do is... Um, you know, for many of the same reasons, just not wanting to miss out on, uh, you know, that time with the kiddos and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, right now being able to still work and do what we do and, um, be home with my kids is, um, is great. So I love that. Okay. Challenging too. My wife, my wife is the same. Yeah. She's, she's been managing, uh, three-year-old normally they're at school right normally they're at like you know school during the day and uh but yeah so she's been a saint so if, honey if you're listening i love you <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's been the last three and a half weeks have been interesting i've now know how to cut hair i oh am gosh. now a teacher mm-hmm. um i'm now a cook on the weekends and yeah it's all you know holding all these different roles it's been <laughs> i have fun, to watch so. some youtube videos on the hair thing because i feel like I, in, the next three, in the next three weeks i'm gonna have some issues i'm not, gonna, uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure how to dress them yeah see we were already behind before all this started so it was like we got to do something about this so yeah I threw on a youtube video and mm-hmm. went on it you know <laughs> um all right investing in others. So what is one investment strategy or hack that you might be able to share with our investors, especially right now with everything we have going on with COVID-19, that they might be able to use to leverage all of this potential opportunity that we've been talking about over this um, episode? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think there's many different answers I could give. And so, um, you know, I think that the the angle I'll take there is, uh, I know that we're all busy still, 
you know, if you have a business and you're still busy, right? If you have rental properties, you're still busy maintaining mm-hmm. the day to day. But like, this has forced us all to really mm-hmm. take a deep look at our our daily structure, mm-hmm. you know, and where where we're wasting time and how to spend it more efficiently. And mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people are realizing that they actually have a lot of downtime mm-hmm. that they might not have realized before, especially if they're going to an office or commuting or what have you. And so I, I think just to leverage that time, at some point it's going to be gone. We're going to go back to whatever the new norm is. It's not going to be how it was, you know, two months yeah. ago, but it'll be the new norm. But things will get back to some type of normalcy. And uh, that time that you found as your downtime or free time will probably no longer be there or be filled with something else. And so take advantage of that time, you know, you know, dive into, you know, books and podcasts. I mean, if it's, Mm -hmm. if if you want to learn a new craft, if if there's another asset class that you've had an interest in for a long time, study Mm -hmm. it, study historics on it and, and, and compare it to what's happening today and just educate yourself so that, You can, again, we talked about taking advantage of, of potential. I hate the word advantage. There's got to be a better word for that because I don't like taking advantage of anybody. But, you know, being prepared for the opportunities that, mm-hmm. that present themselves, how can you prepare today so mm-hmm. that you're prepared three months, six months, a mm-hmm. year from now when, mm-hmm. you know, those opportunities start coming available. So mm-hmm. that's what I, I, I just see so many people on Facebook of like, oh, we're doing a happy hour again today at four <laughs> o'clock. It's like yeah. Monday and it's when and it's like, okay, that's, that's mm-hmm. cool for a little bit. But like, if you're doing that every day and you're yeah. like drinking every day and you're not like paying attention, I mean, yeah, what's, what's it all for, man? Like f- focus on you at this point. Cause this mm-hmm. is, this is a forced opportunity for us all to do that and have some self-reflection. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's such a good tip. It's one that I've been preaching for the last couple of weeks. It's like this is at some point, this is going to end. And the people who have been preparing for the end are the ones who are going to thrive in the, whatever the new normal yes. is. And the ones that were out, um, you know, sitting around and, you know, worrying about everything and not doing anything are the ones who are going to one day when this is all over, be like, oh, shoot, like <laughs> all this time I should have been preparing, you know, now what? So um, I think that is an important thing for folks to remember. And stop watching the news. Totally. I was actually victim to this up until three Me weeks too. ago. And I'm like, you know and I got news apps. So I was like, you know what? Every morning for five minutes, I'm just going to review whatever the top news was for the prior day. Yep. Uh, and that's it. Yep. Because I was like, I'm not one to be glued to the TV. I've been following this thing since, like, which is weird. I never pay attention to this kind of stuff. <laughs> um, I don't remember SARS. I don't remember like any of that stuff. Me too. But this, I in, like know. January, I like know. right after like New Year's, I'm like, for whatever reason, I think this is going to ultimately have a worldwide impact. And I don't know how. And uh, I remember we were on a ski trip in February and I'm talking to the whole, it was like 16 of us there. And I'm like talking to people, a lot of other business owners. And they're like, look at me like I'm crazy. And I'm like, <laughs> how can this not have a major impact? If, if they shut down like they did in China, what they're doing Thank in China, mm-hmm. really here, like how's that ultimately going to affect every single one of us in this room? And, you know, totally. Anyway, so I, I found myself glued to the TV and I, I stopped that like three weeks ago. And uh, now I just 10 minutes every morning, I, whatever it takes me to read the latest updates of the prior day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's it. I don't even look at it after that. Mm-hmm. I figure I'll find out. Someone else will tell me if something big goes on that same day. Right. I'll find out one way or another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I had to put the same limitations on myself too, because up until a couple of weeks ago, I was like every minute of the day, just checking what's new, what's new, because stuff is changing so quickly. But then I realized, you know what, like it's going to continue to change. And so that's what I did in the morning. I take in my first five minutes, see what the news is, and then and then that's it. And then I get it again the next morning so that you don't get overwhelmed. Okay, so last question is investing in the world. So what is one way that your investments are helping to make the world a better place. Yeah. So it's um, it, it, probably in an indirect way, you know, about 10 years ago, I, I started a, a, a charity event. It was literally after the crash. It was a way I didn't have any money after the crash happened. So it was my way of actually taking a hobby. I really enjoy with cycling mm-hmm. and turn it into a way to give back to some of the favorite charities that I've supported over you know many years prior. And uh, that, that, that event is still going strong uh, each and every year. It's every November, we do a three-day bike ride, 75 people from across the country. We raise money for two charities that are near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. And essentially, you know, ride our, our, our bicycles from Fort Myers Beach all the way down to Key West. It's called 72 Hours to Key West. And all that money goes to these two specific charities. But I think, you know, reeling it all back in, my lifestyle, you know, like our business allows me to do that. And it's also garnered mm-hmm. a ton of support from uh, other folks that aren't cyclists, you know, just mm-hmm. outside businesses that we've uh, come in contact with, title companies, attorneys that we worked with that have, you know, really come to support this cause, these two causes that, uh, that, that this ride supports. And so, again, mm-hmm. I don't know. The event takes a lot of time and energy. I don't mm-hmm. think that if I had a normal job where I only had like two weeks of vacation a year yeah. or three weeks, 
mm-hmm. I don't think I'd have the time or energy to, to to manage or put together each and every year to you know support the team that we have that helps you know pull it off every year. So that's yeah. one of the one of the few ways. But I think that's a big one because we've donated. I think now we're we're nearing half a million dollars. Wow. You know, most of it being over the past seven years. The first three years were a little bit of a slow chug to get the thing going. But now each and every year, we on average donate anywhere between like fifty dollars and $60,000. Uh, and it makes a huge impact to the uh, the local area here. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's that's incredible. And it's something that we talk about all the time is that money and flexibility don't change who you are. They amplify who you are. And you can tell through all the things that you are doing that you know, your lifestyle has really amplified the values that are important to you. So Kevin, I know we've talked about a couple places people can go, but um, where do you think people should start with all the resources that you've got out there? What's the best place that they can go to learn more about you and all that you're up to? Yeah, no, my, my home base is kind of my personal website. It's kevinbupp.com. And uh, you can go there and you can you know, get links to our company website and our mobile home park podcast. And then I also, I have another commercial real estate investing podcast that I, uh, that I do on a weekly basis. And that, that can, you can listen to that there on my main website. It's called a real estate investing for cash flow, but it's a commercial based investment uh, podcast. And so that's the home base, kevinbupp.com. If you want to contact me, just go to the contact us page and, and you'll know, drop me a, a line and, uh, and you'll hear back from me within typically like 24 hours or so. All right. Well, we'll have links to kevinbupp.com as well as the other resources that you mentioned in the show notes. Kevin Bupp, creator of Mobile Home Academy, host of the Real Estate Investing for Cashflow podcast, founder of Sunrise Capital Investors, and the list goes on and on. Thank you so much <laughs> for being here with us, Kevin. Thank you, Annie and Julie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Kevin. You've been listening to Investing for Good, the number one podcast for people like you who are investing to build a legacy for their families, create a meaningful and intentional life by design, and impact the world around them. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com slash podcast, and be sure to join the Investing for Good Facebook community. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations every week. Until next time, keep investing for good.